Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, as those of you who saw the invitation for this week's webinar will be aware, um, I had, again, you know, I've, I've spoken about this in the past, that usually I have to give a title for this uh, webinar on a Saturday night or Sunday morning, and here we are, Wednesday, and uh, uh, basically everything has changed. So. Uh, I had intended to talk a little bit about Likud, about the future of former prime minister and leader of the opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu. And that certainly was uh, where a lot of the noise was being made very early in the week or late last week. There seemed to be a lot of tension in the party. Uh, we saw um, you know, a growing discontent uh, behind the scenes or even for the first time with Yuli Edelstein's uh, surprise announcement, uh, you know, really, openly uh, attacking uh, Netanyahu and saying that, you know, he has failed to form a government, only I could form a government, um, and saying things which a lot of other Likud senior members were saying behind closed doors. Um, I always say to people, if you want to know where Netanyahu's standing is in the Likud, you just have to watch uh, who is going to defend him in the main news programs, whether it's the radio or TV or whatever. And lately, we've only been seeing real back back benches, really. Uh, no one in the top uh, part of the list, of the Likud list, no one who really uh, sees, you know, a future, potential future in the leadership of the Likud certainly is backing uh, Netanyahu and even some of those sort of a little bit further down who one would think would be more likely to defend Likud. Just, as I said, the people who uh, are being sent to the major networks are really back-back benches, people who don't really make too much noise uh, otherwise. Uh, there was a, a fascinating moment this week, really interesting, just to sort of show the mentality and the psyche of where Netanyahu is during the um, liquid faction meeting on Monday, all the parties have faction meetings and they usually open to the media, part of it, part of it behind closed doors. There was a recording of Netanyahu telling um, the rest of the Likud party members that he went for a haircut this week <clears throat> in his usual place in Likud, uh, in Jerusalem, sorry. Um, and after he came out, he said he was mobbed. He couldn't move. There were so many people. It was so good to see the support and whatever. Uh, and then someone released a recording of actually what happened. It's not clear exactly who it was, but there's someone recorded him coming out of uh, said uh, barbershop. And there was one or two people. He gave one person a fist bump. There were more security around him than anyone else. Uh, so it was a bit uh, embarrassing for the Likud leader. So what did he do next uh, Next day? He made sure that in a place where he knows he gets a lot of support, uh, Jerusalem's Machne Yehuda market, it's usually a bastion of right-wing Likud support. Um, and he uh, ostensibly sort of just decided to go and get a falafel uh, from the market. Uh, his... Uh, car pulled up uh, with all the security. He, you know, took a few steps, went into a falafel shop, came out. Again, 
the interesting thing is, uh, first of all, Netanyahu, who is a, you know, who, who is a great student of American politics, that everything is well prepared uh, in advance, had obviously called the media. I know some of the people in the media that they got this sort of just off the cuff, this decision to go to get a falafel in the market was obviously well prepared. The media had been prepared. They were there waiting, taking pictures. But again, if you look at the pictures, considering where he was, a real uh, a foundational pillar of Likud support, especially in Jerusalem, again, he was not flooded. He had a lot of security around him. There were some people who wanted to shake his hands. There were some people taking pictures, but really nothing too, you know, too exciting. Um, so maybe it's starting to, you know, to translate, uh, you know, his, let's say perhaps his lack of support and, and the knives out for him in the Likud. Maybe it's uh, starting to translate. Don't forget, this is a person who everyone associates with a, a premiership. They've seen him for the last 13 years as a leader. And now he's, uh, to a certain extent, uh, a relatively weak opposition leader, because despite what he claimed that he'll be able to bring down this government pretty quickly, so far, it doesn't look that way. Uh, what has happened, especially today, is the coalition seems to be doing everything possible to bring itself down. There have been really intense arguments uh, within the coalition today. We saw, for example, uh, Mirov Mikhaili of the Labour Party uh, attack uh, Defence Minister Benny Gantz. Don't forget, Benny Gantz is the person who uh, claimed that he was going to be the new Yitzhak Rabin. This is what was reported when he met with Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, leader of the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. Um, but uh, Mayor Michele, many on the left, are incensed by the defense minister's conduct of late. First of all, uh, there was uh, the banning of uh, four Palestinian quote unquote human rights organizations with associations to be a PFLP, uh, a, a Palestinian terrorist organization, which is prescribed terrorist organization, not just in Israel, but in America. And it is well known in Israel, it's been an open secret for many years that there are these um, human rights uh, masquerading organizations which do have uh, clear ties, whether it's through the membership, whether it's through uh, other means, um, ties with some of these uh, prescribed organizations. So for the first time, an Israeli defense minister who's in charge of these type of things uh, decided that these organizations uh, should be prescribed equally. It got a lot of attention around the world. The Americans claimed that they were taken by surprise by this. Uh, the Israelis said that they had warned them in advance and the Americans again doubled down and said, no, we weren't given any information. It got to a point where Israel's now uh, sent over some experts in this uh, field to really give them uh, all the different information. There seems to be uh, a difference of opinion exactly whether the Israelis did update and up to what level and did it get to the right people or maybe the Americans didn't send it up to the higher levels uh, it, it's unclear but the fact is it's something which incensed also the Europeans and the UN uh, but also the left-wing members of the coalition uh, this in addition to uh, recently released today um, the uh, passing uh, of the final steps to create uh, uh, around 3,000 new uh, homes in uh, what's described as the settlement block, so Israeli homes over the green line, 1,800 which uh, have to go through the final phase, and 1,300 uh, new tenders. Uh, and as you can imagine, that incensed, uh, again, America. America used very strong language, probably the strongest language it's used uh, since this new government. 
Um, but the left, again, Mirab Mikhaili, the Labour of the Labour Party, basically said, uh, you know, Benny Gantz is no Yitzhak Rabin, and he's, uh, you know, trying to pull this government apart. Uh, then we had infighting within Yamina, extraordinary scenes. Um, uh, we had uh, one member of Yamina uh, basically say that finding institutions which are not, uh, let's say, uh, disabled, accessible, um, is something akin to communism. Or he has someone else in his party who is, uh, who is deaf. Um, and basically she came out and said, it's disgusting what he said, and it's offensive to the 1.8 million Israelis with some uh, sort of disabilities. And they showed a WhatsApp conversation of members of Knesset Yamina and um, the, uh, the Yamina member basically left the group saying, this party is a bunch of idiots. Uh, Naftali Bennett, when he should be worried about the dealing with the, the budget and everything else, you know, uh, that goes on with uh, being a prime minister had to basically pull in his Yamina members and try and come to some sort of uh, understanding and try and move it uh, uh, beyond uh, them. But the biggest uh, shock uh, came out uh, today. There were some leaked recordings of Ayelet Shaket, who's uh, the interior minister and uh, number two of Yamina, uh, sort of to a certain extent, uh, Naftali Bennett's right hand came out with recording saying that um, uh, Yale Pitt is a big problem. He keeps on making these diplomatic uh, faux pas. Uh, but she also did say something which a lot of people in the coalition say regularly behind closed doors. They are worried that Gantz is just looking for an opportunity to blow up the coalition um, and he's a problem. And also that uh, she's not sure if there will be a rotation. The rotation is in two years after the beginning of the government that Yale Lapid will become prime minister, take over from current prime minister Naftali Bennett. That was the coalition agreement. That was the understanding. And to have someone so close to Bennett be recorded as saying that, you can imagine, uh, was, it was a very uh, problematic thing. Uh, Shaked uh, called up Yale Lapid to apologize and to try and set the record straight. But as a lot of people pointed out, interestingly enough, she did not, as of now, call uh, Benny Gantz uh, to apologize or clear the air. Um, it's clear that Benny Gantz is still seen as someone who could block the coalition. Uh, that is the view from uh, a lot of people in the coalition itself. Um, but what is really important is this week, at least, and certainly next week, uh, the, 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 the process for passing the budget uh, really starts in earnest. And this is, as I've been saying for many, many weeks, this is really a test for this government. This, you know, if it fails, the government falls simply because it has until November 14th to pass the budget. There was extraordinary scenes this week of um, uh, uh, after the budget uh, passed its first vote, it goes back to a committee, it goes back to the finance committee and the uh, one of the opposition members on the committee handed in 22,000 queries on the budget. And the reason to do so is because they want to try and overload the discussion. They want to try and elongate it as much as possible to the point where the budget won't pass uh, by November 14th. Um, my understanding is that won't be a problem. They have a way of dealing with it. It's not that they're going to have to vote on all 22,000 or discuss them. Um, and you could see the, the face of the, uh, the head of that finance committee, Alex Kushner. He smiled. They even had a joke about it. Um, you know, this will be my bedtime reading, et cetera, et cetera. So he doesn't seem overly concerned. 
And uh, being in the Knesset today, speaking with a bunch of people, uh, MKs, ministers from the coalition and the opposition, not too many people believe that the budget won't pass. Most are confident. They still have a very slim majority of 61, which means um, anyone who votes against or abstains uh, means that the that particular uh, part of the budget will not pass and then have a big problem. What seems to be the biggest worry, uh, extraordinarily, is the fact that what Likud and the opposition is planning to do and already is starting to do is make the sessions, the discussions on the budget, the votes uh, in the, in the uh, plenum floor go on as long as possible because what they're hoping to do, and, and last night they, were, they went all through the night, there were pictures from five o'clock in the morning, and speaking to all these members of Knesset, they said that this is going to go on for quite a few days and into next week. It's going to be day after day, no break. And what the opposition is hoping to do is replicate what happened uh, what was it, a, a month or so ago when the speaker of the Knesset, because it was what's called in Israel a Laila Lavan, a white night. In other words, a night without sleep in the Knesset. Uh, he made a mistake in his voting because he was so tired and there were so many votes and so much pressure and tiredness, exhaustion even. Uh, he voted the wrong way and a law did not pass. Um, the, the timing of the budget is so tight, there is so much going on that one vote, uh, one person votes incorrectly, the whole thing could uh, fall apart. So that is the biggest worry because you can imagine after 24-hour marathon sessions, on the budget, and then you're being asked to vote on so many different issues to remember how to vote each time. They say it's a remarkable thing when you think about it, but this is seems to be the biggest hope of the opposition is that the coalition will be so exhausted, so confused, so tired that on one of the crucial votes, they could vote mistakenly. And the fact that the Speaker of the Knesset, Mickey Levy, happened to do so a number of weeks ago gives them hope that maybe this could happen. So that's really the opposition's playbook over the coming weeks. As I said, there's, there's pretty strong confidence within the coalition that the budget will pass. They have the numbers, barely. Again, it means every single person in the coalition has to vote uh, together on every single issue um, and basically be uh, alert uh, and ensure that they, uh, they vote the right way. Or this government could fall on such a minor Thing as a mistaken vote. That's a remarkable thing. But that seems to be, at this point in time, the biggest uh, worry from the coalition. Um, so I'll leave it there. And I'm happy to answer any questions on this or any other issues. All right. Thanks so much. Sounds like the coalition needs some more coffee. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> from Carrie Hillebrand. Uh, yesterday, there was a vague press conference coverage about an Israeli private jet landing in Saudi Arabia and a Saudi jet landing in Tel Aviv. What is known about the significance of this? Not too much. Um, they're really, the details are very uh, slim, uh, thin on the ground. Uh, we do know that a plane took over uh, off from Saudi Arabia landed in Israel and a private jet went in the other direction. Um, the fact that it, it, it wasn't such a big deal probably really speaks to the growing ties between the two countries. They're not normalized yet. They don't recognize each other. They don't have diplomatic relations, but it's just another step. Uh, and, you know, added to the fact that Israeli planes and other planes can go over Saudi airspace, especially now to, uh, to the UAE and other places. It's just 
shows perhaps the, the normality of such a thing in this day and age, because if it were happening 10 years ago, you can imagine the international furore around such a, an event. But today, the fact that, yes, there were some, there were some headlines on it and there was a lot of interest. It's not clear exactly who was on these planes, or at least uh, I'm not aware of it. Um, but the fact that it, it, was, it, was, it was a vague interest, but not more than that, really shows the growing relations between the two nations. Thank you. From Eric Selkov, what are your thoughts about Iran saying nuclear talks would begin again? Does this mean that Biden does not have a plan B? I think it's clear, I mean, to me at least, that the reason Iran is suddenly coming back to the table is because of the pressure the last few weeks. Uh, even today, a senior uh, American administration official said, you know, still every option is on the table. We prefer diplomacy, but we are not removing any other options. It's clear the rhetoric from uh, the US, uh, Israel and others, the fact that Israel has been uh, openly taking steps to prepare for uh, these other options uh, openly um, is putting a lot of pressure on them. The fact that the Americans are not playing ball and the fact that Americans are putting a lot of pressure on Iran to return the, to the table, uh, they try, they're trying and they have tried to put it off as much as possible. They had the elections and then the new uh, 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 Prime Minister, uh, hardline Raisi, um, you know, there's only a certain amount that they could sort of uh, dedicate to, uh, you know, bedding in the new administration uh, in Iran. Um, but I think now that the pressure has been put on for multiple uh, directions, I think the Iranians feel that they have to come back to the table. Now, what that means is a whole other thing. Uh, the Iranians are very good at delaying even when they're at the table. And don't forget they're not having direct talks with the Americans. And what's clear is while the Iranians have said that uh, these talks, we're ready for talks in November, no one else has come out and said that these talks will happen. The Europeans, the Americans, even the Chinese and the Russians who are more sympathetic towards uh, Iran have not confirmed this. So at the moment, Iran is just setting the deadline and the date for themselves, uh, but no one else has uh, agreed to attend uh, as well. Uh, I think if Iran is ready, probably, the, talk, the, uh, the talks will restart uh, in Vienna at some point soon. Uh, but it's clear the fact that Iran are coming back to the table means that they are under a certain amount of pressure. I'm sure everybody's seen what's going on in Iran. Um, there was cyber attacks, there was a lack of fuel. And don't forget, this is when Iran is supplying fuel to Lebanon and that caused a lot of outrage. Uh, Iranian protesters were asking, where's our fuel got? You know, you're giving the Lebanese people, what about us? and their currency is failing, the economy is faltering. So the Iranians are under a lot of pressure. So it's not altogether surprising they've taken this step, but we've seen in the past that Iran has returned to the talks, but that doesn't mean there's any movement uh, forward in those uh, talks. Thank you, and for our viewers, we'll be having a longer webinar uh, on November 5th, all about Iran's nuclear program uh, from Eric Selkov again, and we have quite a few questions coming in regarding the, the Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem. Uh, first off, what are your thoughts about Biden trying to push a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem? And why is Blinken so demanding for this to go through? Well, first of all, there'll be someone far more expertise than me uh, speaking about that also coming up uh, at the beginning of November, Eugene Kontorovich. Uh, he's an expert in international law to do with the Israel uh, Palestinian conflict. So I would recommend uh, anyone who's interested in this issue 
uh, stay tuned, I, um, what is it, five days, I think next Monday, he'll be speaking about it. Um, but, you know, there, there's all sorts of uh, different opinions about it, exactly what it means, exactly what the intentions are. Um, it's clear that the Americans want this win. Uh, Israel has to come on board, in, in theory at least, for practical measures. Um, uh, but Israel has been sending a message, uh, especially the right-wing members, that they don't want this to happen, they don't think it should happen, and even some saying it won't happen. These are members of the government, obviously more on the right wing. It's become a very symbolic uh, battle, what is relatively bureaucratic, or at least the Americans would argue it's a relatively bureaucratic uh, step to uh, reopen um, a consulate that would cater to the Palestinians. But again, it's now in, you know, the, the world is different, the world has moved on since that consulate was closed. America has now recognized uh, Jerusalem as the capital, the uh, indivisible capital of the uh, state of Israel. They've moved their embassy there. And now to open uh, an embassy or consulate, a mission uh, to another territory and other people uh, does, let's just say, lower that level of sovereignty, at least in a symbolic manner. So that's why a lot of uh, the Israeli government, even the centrists, are against it. Um, but the Americans are pushing hard uh, because, you know, there, there's a lot of different ideas going around. Some that they want to downgrade the, the recognition of uh, Jerusalem to a certain level. They know they can't go far enough and completely, you know, uh, return their embassy to Tel Aviv and, you know, unrecognized Jerusalem. So maybe this is one good step they would feel towards the Palestinians and downgrading what was a, a Trump policy. Uh, of moving the embassy and recognizing Jerusalem. Um, so that's probably, you know, it's, it's the Americans, again, would say that there are Palestinians, we have to have a, a concert to deal with them. But the argument would be, why not have it in Ramallah, which is the seat of the Palestinian Authority? Why not have it in Abu Dis, which is the nearest town just outside the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem, which could easily cater to uh, Palestinians in the Jerusalem area? Uh, but it does seem to be a fight which isn't going to take place until the budget is passed. That is a sort of understanding, but the pressure around it, the noise around it is not going away. And it doesn't seem like either side at this point are backing down. The Americans are intent, it seems, on opening up the consulate, uh, but the majority of the Israeli government, uh, obviously not the, the more left-wing members, uh, but the center and the right are dead set against it. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out uh, because as I said, there's two very different narratives uh, surrounding it at this point. Thank you. From Reuven Hawk, actually, regarding the budget, if the, the government passes its budget, do you think the Biden administration will then put much more pressure on Israel regarding the newly approved housing units in Judea and Samaria, the outlawed Palestinian NGOs, and the opening of the U.S. consulate for Palestinians in Jerusalem? Or will the Biden administration be afraid of bringing down the government? I think we should separate those issues. As I said, the, the first two, there's been a lot of pressure. Uh, it's understood that Secretary of State Blinken had a very, um, you know, ha had a lot to say to Defense Minister Gantz because, uh, as I said, in, in these issues, anything to do with the Palestinian Authority is the remit of the Defense Minister. And apparently Secretary of State Blinken made it very clear in very strong and forceful words, uh, America's attitude towards the, the, the steps against the NGOs and uh, on the building of the settlements and left in no 
doubt uh, you know, the, the, the Biden administration's uh, unease with it. There has been some speculation that there's a difference of opinion in the, in the State Department, which wants to take a far more hawkish line towards Israel, and the White House, which doesn't, maybe it's good cop, bad cop, uh, but there has been a lot more silence or a lot more, let's just say a, a different tone used by the White House than, than the State Department. Uh, the issue of the consulate, as I said, there is an understanding to bring that after the budget. Um, I think, you know, if uh, just sort of from a personality point of view, uh, probably the American administration, being that it's made up of so many people who work under the Obama administration, certainly wouldn't like to see a return of Netanyahu. There's a lot of people who say the only thing that's keeping this government going on a day-to-day -day basis is the fact that Netanyahu is still there in the opposition. If he were to leave or be voted out, uh, not that that's happening necessarily anytime soon, uh, this government would fall, uh, be broken up. Uh, maybe that's also a principle which is governing US-Israel relations. Maybe the there are certain people in the Biden administration who say we have our differences on policy and substance, but to bring this government down means there's a good chance of a return to Netanyahu and the sort of so-called right-wing religious uh, government. And so they have to tread carefully. You know, uh, diplomacy is the art of the possible, and they have to take into account what's going on domestically. Uh, and they have to understand that uh, you know, this is true of any diplomacy. You have to understand the ramifications for any event or any action or any statement or response uh, because there are ramifications. So I'm sure all of these things are being uh, taken into account. Uh, but I think we'll, we'll see in general a lot more open uh, opening of uh, issues, divisive issues within the Israeli government and possibly within the US-Israel relationship once the budget has passed. And there is a sense that there's a lot more stability um, afterwards. And speaking of U.S.-Israel relations, Joy Wolf asks, yesterday doubt was cast on the state of mind of President Biden. How do you see the future of Israel-American relations if he leaves, and what would this relationship be with the vice president? With the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, I mean, I don't think anyone's really, you know, it's, it's, I don't think there's anything, you know, any plan in Israel to think about after, after Biden, obviously, you know, what, what happens in the American political system is for Americans to worry about. And, and, but Israel, you know, Israel has a good relationship with Kamala Harris, you know, uh, uh, foreign minister, uh, uh, Lapid was there recently and had a good meeting. Kamala Harris, if you see her voting record, um, is pretty good on Israel, it's pretty strong. Um, so I think, you know, that there's a lot of uh, people in Israel who, who believe that she, she has a good understanding, despite some issues. There was that issue where she didn't respond uh, to the person who accused Israel of apartheid and ethnic cleansing. There was a, there was a student event uh, about voting rights. And remember, there was a Yemeni Iranian student who basically called Israel all manner of things. And she said, you're welcome to your own opinion. And, you know, we should respect that. Uh, there was a lot of um, disquiet in Israel about that. Um, but generally, Kamala Harris is thought of, is liked in Israel. She has a good uh, reputation. She has a good history uh, of Israel support. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, it, it is a bit of a catchphrase. But for Israel, it's, you know, we, we, 
we, we've had good relations with Democrats, we've had good relations with Republicans. Sometimes there's a personality difference, uh, even you know, between a Republican and a right-wing Israeli uh, prime minister or left-wing with the Democrats. But on the whole, the relations are, are go far beyond. Uh, you know, it's, it's beyond the administration. It goes to the, the American people's general support uh, for the Jewish state. So Israel is, is not particularly worried about, you know, who should be leading the country, uh, but should certainly and is paying attention to all the different forces within the various political parties. Thank you so much from Barack Korkmaz. Uh, good, good evening, Mr. Perry. <laughs> there, there is news on Israeli press about Iranian SAM batteries moved to Syria. Is this true? And if yes, does it remind you of the Russian SAM sites moving closer to the canal before Yom Kippur? Um, I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing particularly new in the fact that the Iranians are, are using Syria as a, uh, as a base to potentially threaten uh, potential uh, retaliation against Israel should it take any steps against the Iranian nuclear uh, weapons capability. Um, Israel has much better intelligence than it did uh, back, back in the day. Um, Israel knows exactly what's going on. I don't know the exact details of what is going on, but we have very, very good intelligence. And that's really witnessed by the, by the almost daily sorties that uh, are going over Syria um, from Israel. Uh, and you know the, the, the pinpoint attacks on various installations uh, which are worrying and threatening Israel. So I think Israel's in a, a very different situation than it was uh, back in the day when it was caught unawares. Um, and so, you know, not to say we're not worried, of course we are worried about all these sort of developments, but Israel's in a, in a pretty good place uh, where it can react to events happening in Syria. Um, but it certainly is a worry that uh, Iran can, uh, you know, work so openly um, over there. And, uh, and it's something, something to be monitored, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this thank week. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Friday for an interview with Josh Mandel conducted by Benjamin Baird. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.